Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to ABG Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. I'm Janet. I'm Helen. And I'm Joanne. Today's guest is known for telling meaningful stories through food, stories about her family's history, stories about her culture, and stories about lessons learned from vulnerable moments. We are talking about Joanne Lee Molinaro, aka the Korean vegan. Her stories hit a sweet spot. They will make you both salivate and also fight back tears. And that's because her stories are visually delectable, incredibly uplifting, and also human at its core. Her cooking will also inspire non-vegans like myself to consider what vegan food is like. A true multi-hyphenate, Joanne is also a marathon runner, a New York Times bestselling cookbook author, a James Beard Award winner, a podcast host, and a social media powerhouse with over 5 million followers from all around the world. While she's full-time with The Korean Vegan now, while building towards this life, she actually did this simultaneously as a full-time attorney and even became a partner at her firm's Chicago office where she remains of counsel today. Mm-hmm. So we'll be talking to Joanne about her relationship with food, about her Korean culture, about her creative work as the Korean vegan, and also key takeaways from her legal career. So with that said, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Joanne. Oh, thank you, ladies. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I mean, we first met at one of our mutual friends' um, pop-up workout events. Yes. And I remember seeing you there and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to say hi. But I was so nervous. And I'm like the most nervous person at those events. Are you really? <laughs> yeah, Sam had to drag me in there. Oh. <laughs> okay, honestly, when I approached you, you were just so kind, so sweet. Oh. And I just want to say thank you. And now after that moment, we saw each other again in a different event and now you're here. Yes. So. I'm so glad I could make it and very excited to visit new parts of California to yes, me. You drove <laughs> way far out to get yes. here. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Okay, so the first question we have for you is that, so Korean food is the cuisine that you grew up with. Yes. And that you create all, if not most of your content around. Is it true that 
Korean food is actually something you didn't enjoy until you were in college? Yeah, I went through that. I think many people go through this. Not everyone, but I certainly did. I just took it for granted because that was literally all we ate, Korean Mm -hmm. food all the time, every meal all the time. And when I was in kindergarten, I started to realize there's like this whole other world of food that I don't have access to. I don't get SpaghettiOs. I don't get hamburgers, chicken nuggets, tacos, any of these things that so many of the other kids were eating. I mean, even like just like what they were bringing for their sack lunches looks so different from me. And like any normal kid, I was like, well, I want to, I want to know what they're having. It looks so much better than this, whatever this is, Mm -hmm. you know, but my parents would never let us eat that food or if it was like for a birthday or a very special occasion. So naturally when you don't get to have what you want, you want it even more Mm -hmm. and you hate the thing that they give you all the time. So that was really what it was. I don't think that I like necessarily hated the taste of the food itself. It was more just that it wasn't SpaghettiOs, it wasn't French fries, it wasn't chicken nuggets, which was what everyone else at school was having. And I just felt it was a grave injustice (laughs) that I was not allowed to have that food. What do you think was the turning point for you then? So when I went to college, of course, then I got to have all that food like all the time. I was under the school meal plan. I lived at the dorms and literally all we ate was like waffles for breakfast and hamburgers for dinner and pizza and, you know, And like, you know, after maybe three months of eating pizza literally every night, you're just like, well, this got old really, really fast. And I found myself craving the food that I had grown up eating, the food that I'd hated so much, like kimbap, kongnamulguk, sundubuchige, all of these things. Hungry now. (laughs) (laughs) So then I, you know, luckily where I went to school, University of Illinois at Urbana, there's a very large contingent of Koreans and Korean Americans there because they have a lot of students from abroad, particularly from Korea. So there's a small street, at least at that time, that catered to that community. And so there were lots of little Korean eateries and I was able to go there. And it was so embarrassing. If they did not have a picture menu, I I would not have known what to order. Like Mm -hmm. that's how illiterate I was and how much for granted I'd taken this food that I grew up eating. So I remember like looking through the menu and be like, oh, Oh, I like this thing. What is this thing called? Oh, it's sundubuchige. Mm. And that was what I, almost every Friday, I would go back to this one restaurant, Dorcas, and I would order sundubuchige, sometimes karbi on the side, and have an appetizer of kungnamurguk. And that was literally one of my favorite things to eat. That sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds delicious. You would have been the friend that I would have relied on to be like, I I know you can't read it, but like figure it out. And then you still order order. for us. (laughs) Well, Joanne, I mean... You have shared with us then you developed, you started to kind of return to this um, embracing of your culture and your heritage and the food. And the videos that you make and the content that you create around it are so incredibly beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, your aesthetic is super honed. It's like cinem, cinem, what is the word? Cinematic. Cinematic, yeah. <laughs> I mean, while you were, you know, working as an attorney, were you like moonlighting as a videographer? Like, how no. did you? <laughs> How did you get so good at what you do? What made you decide that video and storytelling or writing was going to be the format? Um, how did all of that come about? 
Well, first of all, definitely not a videographer at any point, but thank you very much for your kind words on on the videos that I make. I started in 2009 or 10, I picked up a camera for the first time, a DSLR, and I started to learn how to take photographs just by wandering around the city of Chicago, which is mm -hmm. where I lived, and just taking pictures of things. And I followed many photographers on mm -hmm. the internet, you know, at that time it was like Flickr, <laughs> uh, just to learn how to take better photos. I mm -hmm. also learned a lot from just taking photos of myself, um, self-portraits and things like that, lighting and metering and mm -hmm. all of those things. These are the fundamental building blocks to creating images, whether they're moving images or static images. And that really helped a lot. When I started the blog, The Korean Vegan in 2016, I simply shifted the lens from myself, people and buildings and architecture to food. That's really all I did. And they were like really horrible photos. They were so bad. I thought they were like amazing. I remember I took this picture of like blueberry muffins. I was like, this is the best food photo ever. And like now looking at it, I'm like, oh my God, so bad. So I tried making videos at that time, but it's very complicated to make the kinds of videos that I wanted. I'd followed YouTubers at that time, you know, vegan YouTubers, and very quickly identified those with the kind of aesthetic that resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And I found that trying to copy that was a lot of work. And I didn't have time for that kind of work as I was a full-time partner at a law firm. And so I was like, I'm just not doing videos. I'm just going to do photos. Mm -hmm. I'll Maybe I'll use my camera, my fancy camera. And that's what I did until 2020. <laughs> and that's then- That's not too long ago. No, it's oh not too goodness, long ago yeah. at all. I mean, that's when TikTok happened. Yeah, yeah. So I opened a TikTok account and I just used my phone to, to make videos. My, Did you really? Oh yeah. I use what? my iPhone. Like you should see my first one. You can be like, oh yeah, that's like a bad <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> it's an old one. It's iPhone X or yeah, whatever. It's it was, really yeah. bad. Like, you know how like you're not supposed to do the camera facing you camera? Yeah, like yeah. I did that. Okay, like, yeah. It was like so bad. I still do that. Yeah. But yeah. It was horrible. <laughs> but I didn't care. Like I wasn't there to make beautiful videos. Mm. I was just there to participate in this like incredible community, yeah. you know, that's all I wanted. And that video did really well. So I started posting more videos with my phone. Then I learned how to use my phone. The iPhone's powerful even mm -hmm. back then to create at least somewhat of the aesthetic that I had developed as a photographer on my Instagram. If you look at my Instagram photos from before I started my TikTok, you'll be like, oh yeah, this is very consistent mm -hmm. with what her videos are. So I did that for a while. And then I remember thinking like, I have all these really expensive cameras here, which I had used to photograph my cookbook. It's like, why not just use these? Like learn, just figure mm -hmm. it out. Like you mm -hmm. can do it, just mm -hmm. learn. And so I learned how to use those cameras to create the videos that I think people now recognize right. as mine. I'm yeah. always learning. Mm -hmm. There are people who are way way better at this than I am. And, you know, I'm very happy that people can recognize a Korean vegan video, but I'm still like, 
you know, an amateur at best when it comes Mm. to creating the kind of feel that I aspire to. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there who are also, you know, inspired by your story because one, it's in the comforts of your own home and it's something that you're just fascinated and interested by. What are some of like the basics that you needed to sort of start, right? You said your phone at first, I'm assuming a tripod. And then was there, oh, (laughs) not even a tripod. Literally, like I just put my phone up against the wall. Mm. Like that's all. and, And I feel like the more barriers people Mm. create in their head to start something, the longer it's going to take for Mm -hmm. you to start. And I just saw this great quote by James Clear. He's the, you know, New York Times bestselling author of the book Atomic Habits. He's been on the bestsellers like list for like three years or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. It's crazy, probably even longer. And he's like, you know, you want to get started as soon as possible. Life is short. Mm-hmm. Well, life is is very short when you think about it. And all those days that you're wasting thinking, oh, well, I don't have the equipment or I don't know if this is what I really want to say or it's not going to look as good as I have in my mind. I, I guarantee you your first video, your first photograph, your first manuscript, whatever, is not going to be as good as you what you have in your mind. Mm-hmm. If it is, then that's a problem. That's mm-hmm. a problem with goal setting and it's a problem with your own vision. It's not a problem with execution. And so you're always going to fall short. And that's great because it means you have room to grow, but that should never prevent you from actually starting because all those days that you waste not starting, they're just going to aggregate into this sort of pool of regret that you are not going to enjoy. Sam, I was asking about lighting. I was like, I feel like I was just watching one of your videos there. (laughs) Story piece. I feel like I had to step out. Like, oh, I'm actually talking and interviewing you right now. That was beautifully said. And I completely agree with that. Yeah. I mean, just start, just start with what you have and then see, see where it takes you, you know, but just continue. Yeah. Just one step at a time. Do it. Like, and you'll learn from what you just did. Like, okay, well, this is what I can do better. But more importantly, if you're brave enough to put it out there into the public, they're also going to tell you what you could do better. (laughs) And that's also (laughs) very valuable feedback. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If you are usually running around town from day to night like I am, you know that the more multifunctional your outfit is, the better, especially during the winter months when rain and for some snow becomes a factor. Last week, I was running errands around LA and it suddenly started raining. Don't you hate when that happens? You leave the house when the weather is one way and it suddenly changes as you're out. But luckily, I had my vesties on, which means that my feet stayed nice and dry as I walked through all of the inevitable puddles that happen on the uneven roads and parking lots of LA whenever it rains. Ugh, the worst is when the only parking spot that's open has a huge puddle around it. And what are you going to do, not take the spot? Of course you're going to have to take that spot. But if you're in your vesties, there's no need to awkwardly maneuver your body to try to avoid the puddle, or worse yet, try to make the jump over and miss. Ugh. So if you're like me and want outfits that are multifunctional for those days when the weather changes up on you, head to Vessi.com ABG and get yourself a pair today. Go to Vessi.com ABG and get 15% off your first order. Ladies, I have a New Year's resolution for you that's actually easy to keep. This is a year to finally stop wearing uncomfortable shapewear. Support for today's episode comes from Honey Love. They have revolutionized compression technology so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear. For a limited time, only you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com ABG. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com forward slash ABG. 
So I started experimenting with shapewear in the last few years, and it's been an interesting journey to say the least. I tried a bunch of them, and they always felt too tight or not seamless. You can actually see the shapewear through my clothing, you know, that awkward crease in your thigh or midsection. Well, that's all changed because I started using Honey Love's Superpower Short. They target and sculpt your midsection without squeezing your natural curves. So that tight black dress is looking real nice now with Honey Love. Treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com abg. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off, honeylove.com abg. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Start the new year with confidence thanks to Honey Love. The Korean vegan as a business has sort of blossomed into this huge ecosystem of not only just YouTube, but Instagram, TikTok. You have a cookbook, not just a cookbook. Okay, this is a New York Times bestselling author that we're sitting next to you right here. <laughs> and you have a newsletter like you have so much going on. And for you, for the Korean vegan, you are sort of the face of that branding. So I guess one would assume that you're sort of like doing it all, right? Do you I actually, am. you are doing it all? Uh, yeah, I'm doing it all. For my, the record, she's doing it all. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> my husband helps, like he edits the newsletter. I'm I'm a terrible proofreader. Like I've, I've been told that by my legal assistant, <laughs> tell that by every partner I ever worked for. Terrible proofreader. My husband's much better at that. He also helps to edit some of our podcast interview videos. Mm-hmm. So that's been really helpful to kind of take that load off. He also helps to manage the app. We have a recipe app Mm -hmm. and he does a lot of that. But as you know, most of the things that you see, I'm hands on, I'm editing, producing, uh, you know, video, uh, I do the videography, I do the photography, I do obviously the writing. So is it because you don't trust anyone with your work or? No, it's not that (laughs) it's, it's more just, yes, maybe it's like the Asian mentality. I'm like, oh, it's so much cheaper for you to do myself. (laughs) You know, like I don't want to have to spend money. And like, I look, I'm very close with the folks at Google and YouTube. And they're always like, no, you got, if you want to scale, you got to hire somebody to do this stuff. Mm. And I'm like, I have. And while some of the work that they've produced has been good, it's never been as good Mm. as what I produce. And Mm -hmm. it's the same thing with my food. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, like I go to a restaurant, but like 90% of the time, it never tastes as good as what I make at home. It's never as satisfying. Mm. So why the heck would I spend $200 and, you know, parking to get food when I could just like stay at home, throw on a Korean drama in the background and cook my food, eat something that I know is healthy, is going to fuel my athletic pursuits, and is going to taste delicious. Mm. And all I have to do is throw it in the dishwasher at the end. (laughs) Why would I do that? I don't know. So it's kind of the same thing with my work. Like, okay, I could pay someone $5,000 to do this video, but like, why? Like, yeah. I can do it myself. And I also get to look at it and be like, I did that. Yeah. It looks so yeah. beautiful. I'm so happy with it. Well, that is fascinating to hear because yeah. you're turning out so much content. I mean, it takes so much work from like, like you're saying proofreading, but you had to write it first. This is your yes. story. And then someone, your husband is helping to proofread, but then to shoot it and to edit it. Editing takes so much time. Editing yeah. can take a lot of time. Uh, it is a very fulfilling process, at least for me. Mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing is some people don't find it artistically fulfilling. 
uh, other content creators like, oh my God, just shoot me in the head. I don't want to do this. <laughs> so like, I get that, but I do. Like, mm. I actually enjoy it so very much and I'm learning so much from it. That's not to say at some point, like I won't hand it off to someone. But, you know, even when I was a practicing lawyer, I I grew up during that weird time where like they were just starting to shift away from that sort of old fashioned relationship between lawyer and their assistant where they were trying to put a little bit more responsibility on the lawyer. Like don't rely so heavily on your assistant to, mm -hmm. to now where like, mm -hmm. I don't even know if people have assistants, <laughs> but like at that time I really adopted the mentality I'm never going to ask my assistant to do something that I don't already know what to do mm. because there will be times when I'm there at nine o'clock at night and I don't have an assistant. Then what am I going to do? Oh, I can't fax this document because yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how oh to do it goodness. without my assistant. Or I can't make a Xerox copy because I don't know how to do it without yeah. my assistant. And it was sort of the same thing now. It's like, I would like to know how to photograph things. I would like to know how to edit things. I would like to know how to produce a podcast. I would like to know these things really well before I undertake delegating those to somebody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, those are clear signs also of a good manager. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> no, they are. I mean, once you have to know what you're working on before you can actually teach someone else totally. who's assisting you. So you're, you're honing your craft in that way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is, I mean... How do you how do you have so many hours in the day to do that? I just feel like that's so much. It is a lot, and I don't have enough hours in the day. And I you're had, training for marathons. Yeah, marathon training is like really messing things up. Like <laughs> I just like so bad. And I'm at the tail end, and I told my coach the other day, I'm like, dude, Dan, like I hate running. I hate it so much right now. Like, please, just I can't do it anymore. And so he's, you know, but he's trying to balance that against like preparing me, right? Because mm -hmm. New York is a beast. And so it's a little bit tough right now. I have not posted a lot of content on social media these days. And part of that is because I just don't have the capacity. I'm working on finishing my second book. And part of that is just because, you know, with everything that's going on right now, it's like, I really don't want to be on social media. It's mm -hmm. such a terrible, toxic place right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's always a give and take, but mm -hmm. I've been writing pretty regularly for the newsletter. I'm trying very hard to stay consistent with the podcast. Those are things that are important to me. We have weekly videos that go up on the YouTube channel on just like a cooking vlog and things like that. And then of course, you know, I'm about halfway through the recipes of my cookbook, which was due last month. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, really working on that. Yeah. Wow. That's okay. You got a lot going on. Yes. I, yeah. I do eventually want to see how you, like, time block everything. Yeah, I'm curious to see, like, similar. a day in the life. Yeah, of... very similar to what I was doing when I was a lawyer. You'll mm. see my calendar is very similar to that. Mm. Ah, so you're accustomed to kind of this, like, very intense work schedule. I yeah. am. I'm more accustomed to blocking out my day. Mm. What I don't like is waking up and being like, I don't know what I'm doing today. Mm. And I don't like finishing a task and not knowing what I have to do next. Like, mm. that is a waste. And it fosters, I think, um, lack of focus mm -hmm. and it can easily bleed into lack of motivation, which then mm. for people like me turn into a little bit of despair. <laughs> so like, that's not good. It's like depression, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, what I like to do is look at my calendars. What I do is like on a weekly basis, I sit down with myself and I map out the week and I put in the blocks that I need. Not really with the aim of you have to finish all those things. It's more just to avoid that lull between mm -hmm. tasks that really can tank productivity. Yeah. Do you build in time for yourself at all? 
no. Uh, <laughs> what I do is I I think um, I've learned over the year, because I really only, I would say two years now, I've learned over the past couple of years that I really overestimated my productivity. When I was a lawyer, I was very efficient. That was one of the things that I was known for was, oh, Joanne, she'll get it done in half mm-hmm. the time somebody else would, right? And so that was what I was known for. And so I assumed kind of the same thing with this. I'm like, oh, well, I know I can edit this video in 45 minutes. No, you can't. You cannot edit this video in 45 minutes. That's what you somehow weirdly think so, but mm-hmm. that's just not true. And so what I used to do was I'd pack my day with like eight different tasks thinking that I could manage it all. And even if I was able to finish something within a given amount of time, I found that I was way too exhausted to move on to the next Mm -hmm. items on the list. So now I try to be a little bit gentler in terms of how much time I build for, you know, editing a video. I'd rather err on the side of giving myself more time Mm -hmm. than not giving myself enough and then feeling like an idiot at the end. And so that's kind of what I do. I also, do not punish myself if I don't finish everything I had planned for that day. Or if like yesterday, you know, again, social media has been extremely hard for me over the past two weeks. And yesterday after I finished my YouTube video, I was like, you know what? I'm done for the day. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to watch some Korean dramas until it's dinner time. I'm not going to do any more recipe development because I'm, I felt like I was going to break yeah. apart yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's what I, so that's kind of what I do. I don't necessarily build that into my calendar. Yeah. Right. yeah but you allow yourself flexibility yes. when you need yeah. it. Yeah. Checking in with yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Of course. Yeah. yeah. That means that you have to be quite tuned in with yourself to know when you need it and then kind of ad hoc be able to provide that for yourself. I think yeah. so. Sometimes I do wonder, cause I'm still new at this. I mean, yeah. you guys have been doing this longer than I have. I'm still new at this. So I'm kind of like, am I just being lazy? Like, are these just mm-hmm. excuses for myself? Because I got to tell you, like at the law firm, I would have never been like, oh, sorry, Joanne, you feel like crying today? Okay, mm-hmm. then I guess you just don't have to write this brief that's due tomorrow. Like, you don't, like, you don't have that luxury yeah. where mm-hmm. like the judge isn't going to be like, oh, I understand you had a mental health day. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Deadline moved. Like that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. I didn't have that kind of latitude at the mm-hmm. firm. And I appreciated that because it kept me tight. You know, here, because of the flexibility, I sometimes wonder, like, am I being too easy on myself? It is just so easy to say, you know what, that video can wait until tomorrow. I'm just going to watch a K-drama, especially because they're so addictive. So, like, there is a little bit of that. But that's one of the nice things about working with somebody. My husband yesterday Mm. was like, you got to just... I, he's like, you need to get off this freaking phone mm. and you need to chill out for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Take a nap, mm. hang out with the dog, take a walk. I'm going to go to the gym. I don't want to see your phone anywhere near you when yeah. I come back. And that's really important. Yeah. yeah. Your boss at the law firm would never tell you to take a nap. Yeah. yeah. Never, <laughs> ever, ever. I have, but yeah. yeah they, don't, they just don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bathroom break. But do you feel, do you feel happier? In this career, now that you kind of have a little bit more flexibility, sure, you don't have that maybe like structure that you're used to. A hundred percent am happier. I, it doesn't take a lot for me to remember the uh, almost like crippling anxiety that I was working under for the entirety of my career as a yeah. lawyer. And it, and, and like 
at the time when you're going through it, you don't realize how horrible it is because mm-hmm. you can't. You, mm-hmm. If you let yourself think about how bad it is, then you will be paralyzed into an action. And an action in that situation meant no money, which was like not a good situation. So like you just kind of muscle through it. But in retrospect, I realize like it would have been a matter of time, I think, that I capitulated to some sort of really terrible health situation because I had such horrible, like toxic levels of anxiety coursing through my body, like pretty much every waking hour of the day. And I can't live like that. And so to now be in a career that has, of course, a lot of anxiety, as Mm -hmm. I'm sure you ladies can relate to, Mm -hmm. like there's no predictability. There is very little structure. You never know. The economy has like a great impact on your ability to Mm -hmm. run a business. Like all of those things are hard. But at least at the end of the day, I answer to me. uh, Mm. And that's a very, very powerful feeling. Can definitely concur with it. Yeah, Yeah. I think that was so well put. Um, Well, thank you so much for sharing about your working style and your career progression. I want to switch the topic now to a bit more around your family and your culture. Mm. Um, So you shared that when you went vegan, you were concerned that it would make it harder for you to feel a connection with your culture and your heritage. Um, I am a pescatarian now, but I definitely, I went through periods where I practiced veganism, where I practiced vegetarianism, and I had a lot of the same, like, struggles, particularly with like family meals. And then even just like the relationship with my parents of being able to qualm their, their like anxiety about, are you getting the nutrients that you need? They're just, they didn't understand it. And Chinese cuisine is so meat heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd love to hear from you how you navigated those conversations with your family. Uh, What was it like and how, yeah, just that transition. Well, I I totally relate to what you just described with your family and their concerns for your nutrition. My mom and dad and my aunts, they were all like, oh my God, like you're not getting enough protein. Like I remember I ran like, I think my fourth or fifth, no, my fourth marathon. And I took a break afterwards because I had these terrible shin splints. And my aunt asked me, it was just like, oh, how come you're not running today? I'm like, oh, I'm having these shin splints. And she's like, it's because you're vegan. (laughs) (laughs) They always, yeah, I've had, exactly. Aunts and uncles are just like. I was like, okay, so like, it's also like, you know, when I ran the marathons, that's not because I'm vegan. But like when I have shin splints, that's because I'm vegan, you know. Or the moment you have a cold or anything, you're like, oh, you need to eat vegan. Yeah, Yeah, like you need to eat animal protein. Oh my goodness. So it's very, very funny. I think that for the most part, my family is extremely supportive, especially my mother, who I think, you know, having her support is probably the most important thing from my family because she was the person who was making me the food, right? And at first they were nervous, Mm -hmm. but they were also like, oh, this is just another diet. And and here's the thing is like, I had been yo-yo dieting. I think you know, my struggle with eating disorders is, is very well documented. I've had it since forever. I can't even remember what time when I haven't. But I've been yo-yo dieting since college, right? Like those first three months when I was eating nothing but hamburgers, pizza, and waffles. Yeah, that took a, you know, toll on my body. And my parents at that time were extremely adamant that I lose weight. And so they basically have been telling me that I need to lose weight like my whole life. And so when I went vegan, on the one hand, sure, they did all the Asian things, which is like, oh, are you going to get enough nutrients? But on the other hand, they're like, oh, well, this is a way for Joanne to stay skinny. Yay. You know, Mm -hmm. so like there was that sort of dynamic that's hard to explain unless you've experienced it, right? It's like this weird, like, 
push and pull mm-hmm. situation. So I think that whatever concerns they had were tempered by the fact that they were, oh, well, at least Joanne's taking care of her health. Mm. I think now they realize, okay, this maybe doesn't have that much to do with her health. She's been doing it for a lot longer than most of her yo-yo diets, which last like three or four months, right? She's been doing this now since 2016. And even though people have pushed back. For example, my cousins and my brother, they were very, very upset when I suggested an all vegan Thanksgiving. And, uh, I was like, no, like I was very adamant about it. I was like, if it's going to be in my house and I'm hosting it on my dinner table, I can maybe make room for dairy and eggs, but I'm not making room for meat like on my table. I just don't feel comfortable with that. I think now they understand that it's more of an ethical thing than it, you Mm. know, is a health thing. And having seen the success of the Korean vegan, it's very hard for them to be like, we think you should just stop doing this. Like, okay, like, what am I going to do then? Um, (laughs) It's work now. It's funding my life. (laughs) And so, you know, and I like to think that I have a good influence on my parents. My dad, um, you know, has prostate cancer. And that was probably the one of the biggest driving forces for why I let go of meat from my diet was when my dad was diagnosed with that. And he's reduced his consumption of meat considerably. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he hardly uh, consumes any dairy, if at all. So I, I like to think that the kind of life that I now lead helps them. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's still hard. It's still hard that I can't go to K-Town. I, I can't eat anything mm-hmm. there, you know? And even if I can, like, it's just not the same. It's not the same when you order sundubujige and I can't eat any of the panchan. Well, that's like, mm-hmm. you know, 50% of what I'm paying for. So mm-hmm. why would I do that? I, I can't go to any of these bakeries. I just tried to go to one. <laughs> and they're like, sorry, there's literally nothing in this entire place without mm-hmm. dairy or eggs. And these are the things that I grew up with. And it's hard not being able to participate in that. And It's also hard knowing that there are people out there who think, well, that was your choice. You decided to forego that. You decided to sacrifice your connection to your culture for this stupid white diet. I mean, that's what Mm -hmm. a lot of people think and have said to me. And so it's like, okay, that's triggering for me, knowing that there are people out there who think that and who have never even for one second thought, why did I do these things Mm -hmm. or even gotten to know me? But that's a small price to pay for the freedom that I feel knowing that the way I eat is consistent with my values. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I love the way that you articulated um, some of the struggle because I think it's very easy for people because we already know generally if you practice veganism, you already anticipate you're going to get pushed back. So you're like, oh no, I don't miss that. Or I find, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you were very honest and real and sharing how you truly do miss some of these foods. But in the end, for you personally, you feel like it is a worthwhile um, thing to give up. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, people give up things all the time, yeah. you know, for whatever reason. I, I mean, not just like food. Like, um, I'm trying to think, like, you don't watch certain shows on TV right. or, like, you only limit yourself to one hour a week or, like, you know, there are any number of things that people give up. And this is just the thing that I've elected to give up. I believe me, I'm a lover of food. I love food. (laughs) So like there are a lot of things that I wish I didn't have to, but the feeling that I get knowing that I'm not contributing to what I view as unnecessary suffering, it just tastes a lot better than chicken. I don't know what else to say. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you've you've drawn a lot of parallels between um, when you became vegan and also when your relationship to food and to your body started changing for the better. 
right? What are some observations that you've, um, I guess, experienced during that period of time that you can share with our listeners? Sure. So uh, that's a great question. I think there, I'm going to answer it like very literally, and then I'll answer it in a more nuanced way. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not one of those persons who's going to tell you, oh my God, go vegan. You're going to lose 40 pounds and you're going to lose all your allergies and your, you know, your acne will disappear and your cancer will be cured. Like I'm not going to do that. I will just tell you what my own experience was, which is I didn't lose any weight. (laughs) I did, however, like I had this like recurring rash on my body that I actually got after a surgery. Um, So like the area that they went inside to take out this thing that was like rashy as F, like Mm. for a really, really long time, for years. And I noticed after I went plant-based, it completely disappeared and has never come back, which is like a huge thing. I've noticed in general that skin irritations like that have just, they, I don't, I don't get them anymore. I used to get them pretty frequently depending on like what I ate, especially, but now I don't have them. So that's a really great thing. That's like literally the only physical thing that I can think of that Mm -hmm. happened. You know, my cholesterol is great. Like my numbers are always great. I mean, that's always nice. Like knowing like my blood pressure is low, my cholesterol is low, like all of those things are like, yeah, great. Um, They're like, you're immune from diabetes. Like, yay. (laughs) So that's always good. so the, that's like the literal transformation. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, you run marathons. I'm like, yeah, but I never ran marathons before I went vegan. So I have like nothing to compare it to. Mm-hmm. It's very possible I could have done it when I was eating meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea what that would have felt like. I don't know what the recovery times, I don't know what my body would have been like. I just know that it's very possible to be a long distance runner while not eating any meat or dairy or eggs. That's all I can attest to. I will say in terms of the more nuanced answer, you know, I was just talking about this for one of my vlogs. When I told my therapist that I was going to go vegan, she was very worried because I hired her to help me through my eating disorder. And she's like, okay, so you're telling me now that you're going to be like wholesale eliminating Mm -hmm. vast categories of food Mm -hmm. from your diet. Isn't this just another vehicle for severe restriction? And I explained to her, not necessarily, because for me, I had made this trade-off in my head. Okay, I'm not going to eat egg, you know, eggs, dairy, or meat, but now I get to eat rice, potatoes, and pasta, which I hadn't. I was low-carb mm-hmm. right before I went vegan. And that introduction, the reintroduction of those foods in my life, I, I can't even begin to describe the benefits that that has had to my mental health. And I think also I stopped viewing food as purely calories in, calories out. I viewed it more as choice. When I decide not to eat these things and not to put these things on my plate, I'm not just thinking about, oh, how many calories is this? How much, you know, did I work out today? I am also thinking about by choosing this, I'm choosing to safeguard my planet. I'm choosing to safeguard my body. I'm choosing to say, I don't need this cow to die for me today. And that's a very empowering feeling. And that made me feel better about my disorder. Unfortunately, the flip side to that is she's 100% correct. It is still a restrictive diet. Mm -hmm. And there are many, 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 many times where I will say to myself, it's okay if I eat this because at least I'm not eating X, Y, and Z. 
and it feeds that sort of anxiety that I have around food. It continues to legitimize it in these small ways. And so it can be a great catalyst for empowerment in food, but it can also serve as a crutch. There's no black and white to these types of things. So uh, it's just an evolving thing, as you noted. It continues to evolve and it just happens to be where I am today. Yeah, I appreciate you being so open, talking about your eating disorder and just sharing a lot of that journey so publicly because I know a lot of people will find shame in it or want to hide behind yeah. it. What is something that maybe you can share with our listeners out there who do struggle with body image? What is something that maybe perhaps you told yourself throughout that that journey of yours that can help others out there? I remember the thing that really was a game changer for me, of course, is running my first marathon. Uh, like the first time I saw a marathon in 2014, I was like, these people are crazy. Like, what are they doing? Why are they doing this on purpose? Like, I don't understand. Like, why? You know? um, I thought it was nuts. And, you know, eventually three years later, I would find myself doing the exact same race that I thought everyone was crazy in, right? The Chicago Marathon. And when I crossed the finish line, there was indisputable evidence that my body was able to do something that I had previously labeled impossible. Mm -hmm. And that sort of evidence is so powerful in the face of imposter syndrome, insecurity, anxiety, all of those negative voices, including the ones that are directed at your body. It, I could no longer tell my body, you suck. How can mm -hmm. I do that? It just carried me through 26.2 miles, mm. not to mention the thousands of miles that led up to that. Like, that's impossible for me to tell myself that. Like, I cannot do that. However much I don't like the way my body looks, sometimes I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like, I look in the mirror and I've never liked the way my body looks. I cannot still at the same time say you're weak. My body is not weak. My body is incredibly strong. It has to be in order to do what it did and continues to do. And so when you extrapolate that, you don't have to be a marathon runner to acknowledge the power of your body. If you've ever been sick and come back from being sick, then your body is powerful. If you're a mother and you gave birth to a baby, your body is powerful. If you broke your leg and now you're walking, your body is powerful. If you have been through emotional distress, the kind that leaves you in fetal position on your couch, and you come back from that and you're able to laugh again, your body is powerful. These are the things that I learned from running the marathon. And that's what I continue to tell myself every time I start to feel like, oh, I don't like the way this dress mm -hmm, looks. Mm -hmm. Shut up. Your body is powerful. Ooh, I'm going to take that clip <laughs> yeah. and replay it over and over again. <laughs> it's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like to me when it comes to food and your body, the thing that helped you was creating, like seeing, putting value in it that was more important to you than the part that was like negative, I suppose, right. if that makes sense. Um, and, and yeah, that's, so thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. That. I think a lot of women can probably relate to that. Yeah. It's, we're all our worst critics when it comes to that. And at least for me, I was partially raised on the idea that my worth is a function of what I see in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And rebutting that is an hourly task. So Julianne, I would love to talk now about your creative process mm -hmm. a little bit more. So we, before you're we talking about kind of like the way you manage your business, but you know, the work that you do is that of a creator and of an artist and you do everything, every part of it. And you're constantly putting out, um, 
you know, content. What is your process? How do you come up with the ideas? Um, what inspires you? What is that kind of creative process like for you? Well, I wish there was a more structured way of answering that question. I think that if I can like step back, I think that creativity is different for everyone, right? I view myself as a fairly analytical person. You know, obviously I was a lawyer for 17 years. I'm still technically a lawyer. And so I don't really view myself as a creative. Uh, like it was more like to the extent there was anything creative, I like squelched it in order to like, you know, make room for the analytical, which I needed for the exigencies of my career, right? So in that regard, I feel like number one, everyone can be creative, but what that looks like and the process by which you achieve that creativity that's satisfying to you can look different. So for me, I have found that I am most creative when I'm in a relaxed state. I am not creative when I'm like, oh, I got to be creative now. Like that's like not good. Like if I'm like forcing myself to think of ideas, then I'm not going to think of ideas. It's more just like when I'm going for a run or when I'm talking to a friend and something they say like sparks something in me. I'm also a great editor. So if somebody runs an idea by me, I'm like, oh, I have 10 and better ideas for you. <laughs> you know, like that's always sort of my process. And what that's taught me is to prioritize running. I, like number one, because it's, you know, again, it's always a struggle. Like it's not just a way to stay healthy. It's not just a way to like curb things, but it's also a way for me to keep my mind open to ideas. I have found that some of the best ideas I've had about whether it's a story I want to share on a TikTok or a new way of filming my videos or something I want to talk about on my podcast, it happens when I'm running. Mm -hmm. And so that's like number one. I think once I do that, like many people, I have a little app on my phone called a notes app <laughs> and I write those down because you will forget them. Like mm -hmm. I, you, I'm not one of those persons who can memorize all 14 ideas I had on my run. I need to write them down so that I can go back to them and remain inspired by them. And then this is the hardest part, guys, doing it. A lot of times I was just like, well, but I have this vision in my head and I really need to learn how to do this with my camera first. And I need to like YouTube how to like edit it this way and blah, blah, blah. Like you just do it. Just do yeah, it. Just do and it. like you just got to get in front of the camera or like get on the typewriter or whatever it is that you need to do. If it's if it's art, get with the paintbrush or if it's in your kitchen, you need to try this recipe or do mm. the sourdough starter, whatever it is, <laughs> you just got to do it. And like you, you got to remove these sort of internal mental barriers that you've put in there. Like mm. your vision's never actually going to materialize if you don't just go for it. Oh, you should be a spokesperson for Nike. Oh, I yeah. know. I, believe me, <laughs> just, I tried. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. Which, by the way, like they paid thirty dollars for that logo. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's oh. insane. That is yeah, insane. It's amazing, but so so good. Well, these days, I mean, I feel like the brand, the Korean vegan, can stand by itself. Aww. So many people here, and they're like, "Oh, I know exactly what that is." But for people who don't know who you are, what do you say you do? What is your title? Uh, my tagline is always, I veganize Korean food and I Koreanize everything else. <laughs> mm. And I think that's 
very emblematic of my cuisine, which is, yes, I veganize Korean food, which are the staples of my childhood. But then if I make a pasta or if I make like, even the other day I was making these chicken fried mushrooms and I was oh, like, oh, I saw that. That looks so good. Yeah, put like a little lamyeon seasoning in this, <laughs> like add a little kanjang to the, you know, batter. Like I can't help myself. I'll add tinjang to my pesto. <laughs> like I'll add gochujang to my red sauce. Like that's, really what I do. It's And it's really tongue-in-cheek. It's not gatekeepy. Like, I know people get all bent out of shape over things like that. It's more just like, I'm Korean, so pretty much everything I make is going to have a little bit of me in it. There's this yeah. thing called sonma, right? You cook with your hands. So the mm-hmm. taste from your hands is injected into the food. Mm, and yummy. I'm, you know, my I've got <laughs> Korean hands. So <laughs> that's really what it is. I think that's like sort of a very superficial level. It's an easy tagline for people to understand what I do. Of course, what I do beyond that is, you know, share the stories of the immigrant family, particularly my immigrant family, right? And ultimately and hopefully empower people to be compassionate, even when it's hard to be compassionate. Because I truly believe that compassion and empathy are the things that are going to save us, save us, you know, from climate change, save us from our own suffering, save Mm -hmm. us from the suffering we inflict on other people. Those are the two things that we really, really need. I actually didn't, I wanted to ask you this before, but, um, and this is going way back in our discussion to you. So you became really good at cooking. Was that always something that you were good at? Or how did you learn? It's so nice for you to say that, but I'm not very good at cooking. (laughs) Wow. You you think that you are not very good. No, I, I think that I'm okay. <laughs> uh, like I make really good chapche. <laughs> like, I have like really perfected chapche right now, especially if you want to put it over your rice. Like my mom taught me how to do it the like a, a, like a month ago when I was staying with her. I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. And now I feel like my chapche is better than hers. My tenjang jjigae is better than hers for sure. And I've also like utterly mastered sundubu jjigae, which mm. is silken tofu stew. Like Mine is so good. I can't even. Girl, like, it what is, are you wow. saying? Are you Thanksgiving or what? Like, those are three things I'm really good at. Like, but, you know, like everything else, my job is not necessarily to show you how to make literally the best thing of all time. My job is to show you that you can yeah. make mm. these things. Like, if you want to eat sundubu jjigae, you do not need to go to Tofu House to do it. You can make it in your own kitchen. If you want to make takbokki, look, it's never going to taste as good as the street food kind you're going to get in Korea. I'm already, I'm just going to tell you right now, when the harmony makes it for you in Korea, that's going to taste better than what you're going to make in your own kitchen. But... If you don't have a ticket to Korea right now, you can make it in your own kitchen and you're going to be very, very happy with it. That is really what my job is, is to empower people to bring all of these flavors, ingredients, and recipes into their own kitchen and feel good about making it themselves. How did you teach yourself then how to cook? Mangchi. What's, what's Mangchi? <laughs> Mangchi is the Korean YouTuber, like oh. very famous Korean YouTuber. Oh, yes, I see oh, your videos. Not your mom. Mangchi. I did learn some, some from, from my mom. mom, but my yeah. mom is also a professional. She was a nurse. And so she didn't do a lot of cooking for us. My grandmothers did. But by the time I went vegan, my grandmothers had passed away. And Mm. I, you know, shamefully wasted any opportunity I'd had to learn from my harmonies. So my mom taught me a little. She taught me how to make sundubu chicken. And she taught me how to make takguk and some other things. And now she teaches me a lot more because she's retired. But I learned a lot from Rachel Ray. On the Food Network. Oh, okay. That's how I learned the basics, like throw salt in your water. You know, this is how you deglaze a pan, EVOO, all of those things. But then I remember like 
especially that year, because I was training for my half marathon and then ultimately my marathon, I was on the treadmill a lot. And my playlist was all Mangchi. Mangchi, Mangchi, Mangchi. It was like all her. So, and she's not vegan, obviously. And none of the videos I was watching was vegan. It was just like, I want to learn the basics of Korean food and Korean flavors. These are things that I took for granted, obviously, growing up. But now is the time to really get into the weeds and understand this stuff. And again, I, I'm not saying like Mangchi is like Michelin level star, like chef. She isn't. And she would be the first person to tell you that she's not. But she's like got super like Korean mom vibes. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. And it felt a lot like I was, you know, standing over her shoulder and she was showing me like, mm-hmm. okay, like this is how you make takbukki or this is how you create that beautiful broth or this is how you like, you know, make a chige that like has the flavors that you remember. And mm-hmm. I took a lot of that like kind of unconsciously. It's not like I follow her recipes. Mm-hmm. It was more just mm-hmm. like, oh, I learned how to speak this new language mm-hmm. that I hadn't really bothered to learn until then. Thank you for sharing that. I just had to, you know, bridge that gap between having to not really appreciating or enjoying Korean food until college and then jumping to yes. where you are now. Like where did that gap close or for you? Um, where do you see the Korean vegan in five years? Oh, that's such a great question. <sighs> I would like to believe that the Korean vegan will continue to hold fast to its core values, which of course is food, right? That's like number one fundamentally. Because if you think about it, everybody needs to eat. Mm -hmm. And food is such a wonderful vehicle for diplomacy and activism, right? And I think that's like what I am. Like at bottom, I'm not an activist, like I, because I I see what activists do and I'm like, dude, I don't know, I can't do that. Like that's like a whole other level of bravery and courage that I'm not sure that I really have. But it is this sort of gentle activism or even advocacy, if you Mm want to call it that, which is like, love the food, love the people. Right. And that's always like at its core, fundamentally, what the Korean vegan is about. But how do we scale that message? How do we make sure that message reaches the broadest possible audience? Like, I think about like when my cookbook came out, I live in this like weird silo where like everyone's like, oh, I love your cookbook. I love Tenjang Jjigae. I love the smells and blah, blah, blah. And I remember somebody posted a video where they were making f- recipes from my book. And, you know, this is like clearly middle America. And the person who was the recipient of this food was, uh, you know, not Korean, not Asian, you know, a standard American. And everything he tasted, he would say afterwards, smells and tastes like cat piss. Mm. Every single thing, you know? And it was so hurtful to me. I was like, why would you even post this? But like, also like, wow, this is, this is very standard. Like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that many middle Americans would smell tinjang and be like, what the F is this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. and so there's still a lot of work to be done. So how do we scale the message of the Korean vegan so that it reaches into the hearts of these people that have previously remained fairly closed off to people like me, to people like us, to foods like mine, to foods like ours, right? And I think a lot of that goes into storytelling, certainly, but I do want to create a product line that reaches into mainstream middle America that says, oh, wow, like, you like takbuki? Let me give you some takbuki, yeah, you know? Yeah. Or even um, how do we reach into the people who continue to watch TV? You know, how do we share our stories in a way that makes them realize that we're so much more like them than they realize? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that America can encompass so much more than they've experienced in their own lives. And ultimately, I think at some point in my career, 
I would love to be at the helm of an enterprise that has all of these various verticals, strategic verticals, but multiple verticals nonetheless, that are pushing that message forward into the hearts of not just my fringe audience, mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. community whom I love, you know, but also into a community that may be like, I'm not vegan. I'm not Korean, but hey, this food tastes really good or this story resonates with me or I believe in this. Yeah. I mean, as someone who, you know, first found you on Instagram, just seeing your stories, I was like, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. And it's vegan. (laughs) And I think that is the initial shock that you need to, you know, get with people right off the bat for them to be like, oh, I'm more interested now in what this is. Oh, this is Korean inspired. Like, oh my goodness. And I can totally see you building this enterprise for yourself. TV, CPG, you already got the book. (laughs) So many other things going on. I could totally see this for you. I'm excited Thank for that. You. That yeah. sounds super exciting. Mm-hmm. I also love that the way you, when we ask like, oh, what do you say you do for work? Or how, what is like the title that you would give? And then where do you see the, like the company in five years? Your answer is always mission driven. And it's mm-hmm. about like what your vision is and what your goal is and not at all about the way it fits in the way that society mm. defines things. That's um, so true. I think I'm sure the two of you can relate, but if you don't, go with your own vision and mission, it is so easy to get pulled in all of these directions. And then you start to lose the sense of who you are, what your brand identity is, and who your audience is, Mm -hmm. who your community is. And I experienced that very early on, Um, not early on into the Korean vegan, obviously, because I wasn't, I was doing it as a hobby. I didn't like, didn't care about like, I was like, okay, like, if you don't like, I don't care. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not making money off of this. Mm -hmm. It's just a side thing. But when I got onto TikTok and all of my videos were going viral, I soon very quickly thought, oh, that's the purpose of my life to create viral videos. I didn't do it consciously, but mm-hmm. it was subconsciously like I was so addicted to that. I was like, that's the purpose of my life is to create viral video after viral video. So what happens the first time one of my videos doesn't go viral? I'm like, well, I have no purpose in my life now. Mm-hmm. I suck. I'm horrible. I'm worthless. I have no value. And uh, what happens when two, three, four, five videos don't go, you know, then you really are like, what is, why don't, what am I doing? Yeah. You know? And that was really hard for me. I think it was hard for a lot of content creators at that time. And it certainly continues to be hard for content creators who achieve, you know, overnight success, because Mm -hmm. then once that success dissipates, you're left with nothing, right? If you don't have vision, if you don't have mission. And I had to go to my therapist, this is a little embarrassing, but I had to go to my therapist and she's like, why did you create the Korean vegan? Like, what is its purpose? You've been doing this since 2016. Like, why did you do it? And I remember I like opened up an Excel spreadsheet and I created a business plan mm-hmm. and I wrote down the mission of the Korean vegan. And I think that exercise was so important for me because then it allowed me to say, it doesn't matter if this video doesn't go viral. What What is that like to your mission? Mm-hmm. Like that, like, that, I mean, sure, virality is a component of it, but there's so many other things that are built around this core vision for yourself that you can afford not to care if this video doesn't go viral. Mm-hmm. It is not attached to who you are or your self-worth. And that was incredibly important to me. And I always suggest that, you know, whatever you're doing, I mean, your mission can be like, I just want to be the richest person in the whole world. That's fine. But just make sure that that objective remains crystal clear and in focus and that you don't get distracted from all of these other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love, I mean, I think any listener out there can relate because 
everyone in your life is doing something and to shift the focus on what is your why or like the mission and the value and the vision versus kind of this very specific thing. Exactly. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swathers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. So now we want to learn a little bit more about your career as a lawyer, uh, because you still hold your license. Mm -hmm. And um, that is kind of where I want to start is the fact that you've created the Korean Vegan. It's doing well. This is now your full-time focus. And yet you still keep your license renewed. Um, Why is that? And and like, (laughs) or how does law play into your life now? That's a great question. I think at first it was like my agent, uh, I have a lit agent that I've worked with since 2017. He's he's like the most loyal person on Team Korean Vegan. And he's always wanted me to write a book about the law. Like he mm. really, like that's like his dream for me. And I'm like, I don't know, Charlie. Wait, a book about the law? <laughs> yeah. Like, like a legal book. Like, like a book on politics and the law. So mm. back in 2000. 20, I authored an article that was published in The Atlantic and it was regarding the election fraud mm-hmm. lawsuits. And I mean, to be fair, like Charlie's right, that was probably like one of the most important things that I did. And it's something that I remain insanely proud of. Right. And he's like, why don't we take that and turn it into mm-hmm. a book? You know? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, and so I think there was some thought there like, well, let's continue to maintain my bona fides as a lawyer in case I ever do want to publish something in that genre. Mm-hmm. Right. I also think that there's a level of pride. I worked really, really hard in that career. I, poured a lot of money into that career, right? School loans and the like. And my parents sacrificed an immense amount to afford me even the opportunity to do Mm -hmm. these types of things. And making partner was one of the pinnacles of my life, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not easy for me to just be like, okay, I'm done with that. You know, like it's, it's just not that easy. I was speaking with this woman, Kristen Hanna. She is you know, number one New York Times bestselling author of The Nightingale and 19 other novels. She's like this badass author, right? Like the dream. And she's like, yeah, no, I kept my license for 20 years. You know, even after oh, wow. she was like this unbelievable success as an author, and I could totally relate to that. Mm-hmm. And it's not always easy. Like you got to sit through these stupid online classes for like I don't know, 27 hours or something oh, like wow. that. Each in order, year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not each year, like every three years, okay. you have to maintain your license. So it's not always the easiest thing to do, but I don't know. There's just something about 
that license that maybe makes us feel like it wasn't all a waste. I imagine mm. it's largely symbolic, but still. Mm. Yeah. I mean, when you tell it in that level of detail, it makes total sense. I, you've put so much into it. It's become a part of your mission too. Yeah. So. So in a recent video, Joanne, you shared how your dad, um, a conversation with him made you cry when he let you know how proud your grandmothers would be oh, of you. Yeah. <laughs> Can you share with us that moment? Yeah. So just to back up, the New York Times, they interviewed me as a TikToker who had success as a cookbook author. So that transition from TikToker to cookbook author isn't always straightforward, but the article was just about how, oh, there's this new genre of cookbooks that are doing really, really well. And they flow from these TikTokers who've had success in their content creation. And I was one of the individuals who was uh, interviewed for that. And, you know, they came over and they took photos of me. And my editor that morning, she's in New York City, so she had gotten a paper copy of the Times. She's like, look, you're in the Times. And it's like this wow. picture of me, right? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so we were, like, super excited. And I happened to be staying at my parents in Chicago at that time. I had a work engagement. And I, so I was eating breakfast with my mom and my dad. And I was like, guys we should just stop everything we're doing and go get a physical copy of the times. Like, wouldn't that be really, really fun? And my mom's still in her pajamas, like in her, like, you know, typical Costco Korean mom vest, <laughs> and like, you know, like in slippers. And my dad's like, you know, eating his like oatmeal. And we're like, yes. And so we literally drop everything that we're doing. And we just hop into a car and we make it a mission to find a copy of the Times. Like we'd never bought a physical newspaper before. So we were like, oh, we had no idea where to go. <laughs> so we like randomly went to, I think, the nearest Walgreens and we found out they were all sold out. And so we're like, oh, where do we go now? So then there happened to be like a fresh market, which is a local grocery chain right next door. So we went there and lucky for me, they had a copy. My mom opens it up and there I am. My face is right there. And she's like literally holding like that scene at a Joy Luck Club, you know, like where she's walking down the street. (laughs) Like that was my mom. She's like walking throughout the grocery store with this newspaper, like with my face plastered against her very small body. And she's like paying for it. She's like, look, this is my daughter, you know? And so it was like very intense, like lovely moment. It was hilarious. We get back home. We're sitting at the very dining table that we were sitting at when I had launched the idea of dropping everything and looking for this paper. And we're finishing up our breakfast after, of course, they'd spent 20 minutes like positioning the paper and the food and the coffee (laughs) for their beautiful photo shoot. And, you know, my dad's sipping his coffee and, and my dad's a fairly taciturn person. He doesn't talk very much. He certainly doesn't volunteer very much. And just out of nowhere, he goes, you know, your grandmother, if they still alive, I can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. And of course that like instantly, like the tears come to my eyes. I loved my grandmothers. I mean, they were like my mothers to me. And the idea that they would be proud of what I've done in my career means like everything to me. And also to know that my father was thinking of that Mm -hmm. on his daughter's behalf, that also made me feel so loved Mm -hmm. and uh, safe Mm -hmm. in that situation. My mom wrote in the caption, like when I shared that on Instagram, she wrote in her comment, she said, I saw you instantly, the tears fill your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think 
Asian families don't always have these kind of openly emotional moments. They're few and far between. And most of the time they're filled with trauma. Mm -hmm. And luckily for me, I'm at this place in my life with my parents where instead of trauma, we've replaced these, you know, fraught moments with these quiet quiet moments of joy, safety, mm. and love. And that was one of those. Oh, thank you for recounting that. That was so yeah. beautifully yeah. said. That I'm very so lucky. Beautiful. My mom and dad are unbelievable. I'm very, yeah. very lucky. Has your dad ever made a comment like that about your law career? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I had to ask any moments where, no. you know, I mean, silence. he was like so overjoyed when I passed the bar. Like that yeah. remains one of the happiest memories of my life. Like it was three in the morning. I just found out that my number was on the list of the numbers that had passed. And it was like knocked on their bedroom door and they were, they had been up all night waiting, but pretending to sleep. And I was oh. like, oh, daddy, I passed. Oh. And I remember my dad just jumped out of bed. He's still in his pajamas. He's jumping up and down and congratulating me. And then the next thing I know, he's on the phone to Korea. So like that was very, very intense moment. But this is a quiet introspective moment and one that I did not anticipate. Yeah. Oh, always in the pajamas too. That's a symbol of the happy times. (laughs) Okay. Well, the last question we have for you was sourced from some of our listeners. Just a few fun questions to ask you. Mm -hmm. So the best non-vegan dish that you have veganized? Uh, Jajangmyeon. 100%. 100%. Oh, yeah, okay. I love jajangmyeon. There's a reason it's the cover of my book. <laughs> favorite pre-marathon meal? Favorite pre-marathon meal. It's not my favorite, but it's like the only thing that I will <laughs> let myself eat, which is really, it's not going to sound fun. I eat boiled potatoes with a little bit of soy sauce and white rice. Oh, okay. And it's very plain, but carb, I've done- Carb heavy. Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. carb yes. heavy to the exclusion of everything else. And that is essentially what the science suggests. You, you can't mm. eat- fat or protein. Mm. You really just like gotta eat the carbs. Yeah, and yeah. that's my favorite carb. So yeah. before track, we would have spaghetti nights. Oh, yeah. Straight yeah. up spaghetti. See, yeah. like I think yeah. my body just doesn't handle spaghetti well. Mm. Like it doesn't digest it very well. Yeah. yeah. Or like the pasta, the mm. like the wheat. Like mm. I think my body's just like, like I'm not celiac or anything wheat intolerant, but I've just noticed for efficiency purposes, Rice and potatoes is the best for my body. Simple. Very simple. Mm-hmm. Yes. The most underrated vegetable or non-meat ingredient? Uh, cabbage. Oh. I love mm-hmm. cabbage. It's a wonderful cruciferous. It's so good for you. And it's incredibly versatile. I love broccoli. I love kale. Those are really, really good for you, but not versatile. Like there's like you can do some things with it. That's true. Yeah. But cabbage, if you cook it right, it can be like very meaty in texture. It can also be sweet. It can also be savory. I often use it for my smoothies and my juice. It's excellent for stomach digestive issues. If you've got like, you know, uh, my stomach is tends to be sensitive because I'm very physically active and like my body like doesn't know like what it's going to happen at any given time. Um, So I love the cabbage juice for calming Mm. things down. It's great for your microbiome. There's just so many endless things that you can use it for, but also that it's good for, and it's relatively inexpensive yeah. at the groceries. You get so much for your. I've dollar. actually never heard of cabbage one. spoken in this like. I love cabbage. Way, yeah. Actually, my editor, yeah. she was so funny. She like sent me her initial notes on my recipes, and she's like, "Um, I gotta say this, but like, you know, I think it's like 
maybe too many cabbage recipes. <laughs> she's like, I don't know. And then she like lists off 11 cabbage recipes. She's like, I don't know, but like, I'm totally open to like what you're saying, but just saying like a little cabbage heavy. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm really into cabbage. <laughs> okay. The one tool you couldn't do without in the kitchen. My julienner. Mm. <laughs> I love using the julienner for like zucchini and for carrots and it just makes life easier. Yes. And aesthetically beautiful too. Yes. yes. Yeah. Where can our listeners connect with you? I don't think this is a question that they asked, but <laughs> a question for the listeners out there. So you can find me at The Korean Vegan basically everywhere on all social media platforms. You can find me on my website at thekoreanvegan.com. And you can always email me at joanne at thekoreanvegan.com. The only place where that differs is my podcast is called Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. So other than that, it's pretty easy. The Korean Vegan. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Joanne, the Korean vegan. This is a dream episode. Um, For anyone who uh, has questions, please hit Joanne up. And uh, with that, we will catch you all in the next episode. Thank you so much. It was an absolute delight. Oh, so good having you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. Come on. I guess the light did not want to say anything. Wow. And our light just went out. (laughs) So (laughs) I guess that signals us for the end of this episode. And with that, we will catch you all on the next episode. Bye. Bye.